We ask you to bless this day and thank you for this time of coming together as we look at who we are in Christ and as we're studying, we ask for your spirit to be present and guide and lead and we just thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You start at verse 21. As a matter of fact, that is the verse we're going to read. For he hath made him to be sin for us who, know, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. And the topic today is righteous. We are made righteous. And we know it's not our own righteousness that we're, we're seeing, and that's what we're going to be looking at as we go through this. And this verse is the G, that for he hath made him, and that's God has made Jesus, to be sin. And this is something that really blows the mind of most people, that Jesus became sin on the cross. Uh, he was perfect, the perfect Lamb of God, and it goes back all the way back to the Leviticus and Exodus, where they put their hands upon the, the, the Lamb, and they would basically speak their sins over the, over the Lamb, and you know, symbolically transferring their sin to the lamb that was going to be their sacrifice. Um, and Jesus was that lamb. He became sin. And that is when the father had to turn his back on him and they broke fellowship. And I've, all, you know, I've been saying over and over, the hardest thing that Jesus did was not the beating he took, was not the crowns he took, was not the nails he took, but when the father had to turn his back upon the son, that would have been the hardest thing that he, and we can't comprehend it, we can't comprehend it because we don't know what it means to have, no, one, we don't know what it means to have perfect fellowship with anybody. And we can have good fellowship with people, but not one that is just perfect. It's, nothing is wrong with it. Nothing is, there's no, nothing bad. And then to have had that fellowship for all of eternity, and then the Father turns his back on him because he became sin. He took our sin upon him, and it said that who knew no sin, Total separation from God instantaneously to be made, made different. That we might be made the righteousness of Christ, of God in, in him. That we are made righteous. We are made righteous. And you want to catch this. To be made the righteousness of God. <laughs> Not man-made righteousness, but God's perfect, complete righteousness. That's something we can't have, and he, Jesus gave that so that we could be made righteous as long as it's in him. And that, this is a powerful thing when we think about it because this takes us back into the justification we've talked about and, and all the various things that are out there that we are made righteous. God's righteousness is put on us. And this to be made means it comes into existence. It just <laughs> He just declares it, and it comes into existence, and we are made righteous and it is a powerful thing when we think about it God looks down he sees his son's righteousness on us and we've talked a number of times about that but that's where the power comes in because it's not my righteousness I can't lose it it's God's righteousness because I am in him and so we want to just look at this because the righteousness is something that's really important and this sin is the the lowest level of sin there is it's it's the to miss the mark Okay, it's that archery term that they talk about, you know, and when you miss the mark, I don't know if anybody's ever shot archery or not, and you miss that target, and this is the word that they would use, you, you totally, you didn't even hit the target, you missed everything, this is what I'm talking about. 
and you know this is this is the one that's not not done on purpose necessarily. It's not done with with intent. It's just something I if you if you find yourself in sin, this is the type of sin they're talking about. I just all of a sudden went there. I didn't mean to be there, but here I am in sin. And so Jesus became even that lowest level of sin for us. We're going to turn to Romans 3 because that's going to have the most of what we're going to be looking at today. Romans 3, starting at verse 22. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all that, and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned to come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sin that are, for sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, that the time of his righteousness, that he might be just, just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? Law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only, or is he also the, of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also seeing that it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. So we're going to look at this. It says, verse 20, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Christ Jesus, unto all and upon all them that believe, and there is no difference. So he's talking about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is put on us by faith in Christ. This does not, and we, we say that very specifically, it doesn't mean that everybody is saved just because Jesus paid the price. Okay? He paid the price. He paid the price for everybody's sin. But it has to be accepted. We have to say and we believe that, number one, that we're a sinner. We've covered this so many times. Number one, we're a sinner. Number two, we deserve punishment. Number three, Jesus paid for it all and, and rose again in victory. And then we accept that sacrifice and be able to say, yes, I believe. And there's a lot of people, unfortunately, that probably aren't saved because they never truly believed. And Jesus talked about it in the parable of the weed and the tares, where, where if you remember the story, the, the farmer goes out, plants weed, and then in the middle of the night, his enemy plants tares. And tares are something that look exactly like wheat until such time as they become with a full fruit on the top, and then you say, not wheat. I guess they don't look exactly. If you look close enough, you can tell the difference. But they look to the normal person just like wheat. And the idea is that in, the, in churches and in Christianity, Satan is going to put people that to the world, you know, to people looking at them, look like Christians. They, they're going to be, and I've seen this. I've seen people get saved late in their life and they realize they haven't known God all their life. And they've been in church more often than and most of the people, they're there every time the doors open, uh, they're reading their Bibles. Everything about them, if you looked at them, you'd say, wow, that's a good Christian. And, but they never knew Jesus. 
And this is something we all have to look at our life and say, am I a follower of Jesus? Do I know Jesus? Once you know you know him, you know that you know him. There's no question. But we cannot, we can fool people pretty easily just by coming to church, being dedicated, come to church, read my Bible, you know, even know my Bible. You know, you think about Satan when he tempted Jesus, he quoted scripture to Jesus. Satan knows the Bible really well. And he likes to take things out of context. And sometimes you'll hear teachers, they'll teach something and they teach it out of context. And it's been said, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. If you take enough verses out of context, it, it, it'll, you can make it say what you want. Uh, there is an old joke about somebody who says, you know, doesn't read his Bible in a consistent pattern. He just opens it up and says, I'm going to do whatever it says. And he says, and, and Judas, Judas went and went and hung himself because he was so sad. He goes, well, I'm not going to do that. And then he opened it up and the next verse he opened up says, go and do likewise. You know, you know, so you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. But, you know, the key is we want to take it in context. We want to, so whenever you're reading something in the scripture, you want to read, you know, 5, 10, 20 verses in front, 20 verses after, before, you know, especially if it says something that doesn't make sense. If you're reading a verse and it doesn't seem to make sense, read the context of it and say, oh, okay. And usually when you read it in context, it starts to make, make sense because you can make, you know, people's biggest complaints is, you know, and, and I saw a cartoon of this recently in the newspaper, you know, biblical traditional marriage and it talks, it starts with Adam and Eve and then it goes to multiple wives and, you know, and all this, you know, marrying family and everything. And, you know, the point, their point was, you know, even in the Bible, it seems that marriage is not one man, one woman. Well, the problem is, because people did something that wasn't the way God wanted it done does not mean that the Bible says it's right. You know, just because men went out and married multiple wives doesn't, doesn't mean that it's white, that it was right. Uh, and so the Bible just records things as they happened in many cases. When it starts talking about historical stuff, it's just saying it happened. Wasn't that Joshua? Uh, Joshua, I don't know if Joshua did, but Moses had more than one wife. Uh, you know, uh, of course, uh, Jacob ended up with, with four wives yeah, out of the deal. Was, I was thinking Jacob. You know, uh, and, the, and nowhere in the Bible does it say, you know, pol you know, polygamy is a good thing. Matter of fact, if you read the Bible carefully, every time somebody had more than one wife, there's all kinds of trouble involved with it. So you could say the Bible is very clearly saying don't do it if you really start looking at, you know, you look at all the trouble Jacob had with four wives, you look at the trouble Solomon had with his 700 wives and 300 concubines, you know, uh, you know, and you look at it and say, no, the Bible's not saying polygamy is good. Matter of fact, if you look at it, the Bible says, you know, nothing but trouble, don't do it. Uh, and go back to Adam and Eve, one man, one, <laughs> one woman. So we want to be careful because the Bible can be twisted and, and mangled to say, say things. But we want to be sure that what it's saying is true. And that's one of the reasons I like to take larger chunks of verses at a time so people can say, here's what it says, and it's in context, and... And, and go forward with it because, you know, we are the righteous of Christ because we are saved. Because yeah, the stories are there to show uh, the flaws. A lot of times it's to show the flaws that these people aren't perfect. And God did that, I think, for just that reason. Easy. If these guys who were used well had problems, I have problems, therefore God should be able to use me. And every one of us are in that boat. Very few people are, as a matter of fact, only two that I can think of have nothing bad said about them, and one is Daniel and the other is Joseph.
Does that mean they were perfect? I don't think so. <laughs> it just means that they were close enough that God said, I'm just going to show you their good side. Uh, and you look at people like Daniel and, and a bunch of these other guys that had all kinds of problems. And God still used them. And that's the good news is God will use us even when we are imperfect, which we all are, and sometimes make big mistakes. You look at somebody like Jonah who said, okay, God, I don't want, I don't want the, the Ninevites to be saved, so I'm running the other direction. <laughs> you know, he didn't want the Ninevites saved because they were the Jews' enemy. And so he's going, no, I, don't want, I want you to destroy them, God. I'm, gonna, you know, I'm just going to go the other way and not do what you told me to do. I want them destroyed. And, of course, God brought him back. He preached and saved the entire, you know, the entire Ninevite kingdom, who then another hundred years later or so came back and destroyed, you know, been in trouble for them. But the whole idea is God will use even people who are troubled and have problems. And because he says he's going to work out things for good, everything will work out for good, and that he is sovereign. He knows what we're going to do. He knows what others are going to do. And so he's, he wants us to be righteous in Christ. Yeah, before it happens here, he knows it happens. Yeah, because he's there already. We've talked about that. God is omnipresent, not just in, in everywhere in the world at this point, but he's also in every moment at the same time because he's outside of the world. He's, he's you know... And we've said it, he's with Adam and Eve right now in the Garden of Eden, and he's already at the Millennial Kingdom in the future. And everything in between, he's there. And we can't comprehend that. You know, it, you know if you've studied enough physics, you understand the, the principle is out there that that can't exist, but we don't, we really can't comprehend how that could be. Like a string theory. But you get into, the, yeah, you get into that, you know, mixing and, and time and... Time is a dimension that can be played forwards and backwards as far as, as science can tell us. And God is there. God is in that side uh, where he, we can only interact with time in one direction, theoretically. Uh, I hate to see if this week could go back in time because we mess things up. Yeah, we do a good job messing things up. Yeah, we, we do a good job messing up the present. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to see what we could do if we went back into the past and changed things. So... But we have the righteousness of Christ because we are in Christ. And all through, through the, the epistles, and I just challenge you as you're reading the epistles, look for that statement, in Christ or put on Christ. It's all through Paul's writing because he understood that the only way that we can come before the presence of God is to be in Christ. That's where victory comes from because I am in Christ. Uh, it's where God, why I can go before the throne of heaven, which we talked about, because I am in Christ. I have his righteousness. And it's why God can deal with us at all. Because when he looks at us, he does not see our imperfection. He does not see our sin. Because Jesus paid for it, and we can interact with him because we are in Christ. So that when you come before him, he just sees perfection. And this is very powerful. This whole section about righteousness is so powerful because the victory is because it is his righteousness. And you know, one of the statements I've used many times is God has the ultimate dress code. You have to be in Christ or you're not accepted in heaven. You know, and there's, there's the one parable where, where the, the wealthy person puts on the, the, the wedding and he comes to this one and he provides the clothes for the guests. And he comes up to the man and says, why are you 
why aren't you wearing the garment that I provided? And of course, no answer, and he sent him out to the uttermost darkness where there'd be gnashing, wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a picture of not being clothed in Christ, trying to get into God's presence and being cast out. And so it's all part of that mix that's out there. That God is saying, we can only come before him clothed in Christ. And the good news is, once it happens, it's permanent. He never leaves. He goes, okay, I don't know what you're, you know, I don't care what you're doing underneath there. It's going to be forgiven. It's going to be gone. It's covered. It's paid for. But the Father does not see it. Now, we know that we're not perfect. We know that, that we've got issues. And we know we're, we're working on being sanctified. But the Father doesn't see it. And that's the good news. No matter how bad I mess up, God's going to forgive me because it's already under the blood. I'm already in Christ. Does that mean I go out and do all the bad things I possibly can so he can forgive me a lot? No. And if I really have him in me, indwelling in me, I'm not going to want to do that. I want to try to let him work out of me and, and make me more and more perfect. If you ever get into a place where you can sin and not feel convicted, then you've got a problem you need to look at and say, why? If, we, if you know somebody who says they're a Christian and they can go out and just sin, sin without any, any consciousness of sin, I would probably start praying for their salvation because I'd be concerned about it because his God's truly indwelling them. Because I can't, I can't get away with sin. I can't, I can't go, I mean, I can sin, and, but God is saying, no, you're not supposed to do that. Quit doing it. <laughs> Quit doing it. I may even go in a long-term time of sin but God's right there in my, in my head saying, stop, stop. And, but if you can sin without having any, any conscience or any pricking in your heart that it's wrong, then you've got to look at your relationship with God and say, what's, going, what's wrong with the relationship? And because we're in his righteousness. We're in the righteousness of Christ. And it says, you know, verse 23, For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely, by his grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Justified, being declared perfect freely. He declares us free. It doesn't mean that we have to work for it. It doesn't mean that I have to do anything. He just declares us freely, that we're, that we're, that we're just. And this is why I, we talk about this. So many people try to say, well, I've got to... I've got to show this person that they're a really sinner. They've got to get cleaned up. And we might even hear this. Well, I'll come to church when you know, I stop whatever, whatever sin it is they're doing. Drinking, drugs, running around, lying, stealing, whatever it is. I'll come to church when I've got my life cleaned up. No. God wants you to come to him while you're, while you're all messed up. Then let him come in and change you. Because we just don't have the power. And that whole mentality goes back to the idea of i got to do more good than bad to please God. And Because I've heard people go, well, if I walked in the doors because of how bad I am, the roof's going to fall down and God's going to kick me back out or strike me dead. No, come to God. He wants, he wants your presence. He wants you to turn to him. He paid for your sin. No matter how bad they think they are, Jesus has already paid for that sin. And you know, it, it's sad to say, but somebody as bad as Hitler if Hitler in his bunker said a prayer and you know, confessing his sin just before he pulled the trigger to kill himself, then he'd be in heaven. It's hard to imagine. <laughs> but God says, 
that's the case. It's a free gift. And I don't necessarily believe that he did say any kind of prayer like that before he died, but who knows? We don't know him. And, but, and you could also be the best person in the world, you know, doing all kinds of good works for somebody, but if you don't know Jesus Christ, they'll end up in hell. God's given me a lot of answers, and you know, God is always there for us, and He always loves us, you know, no matter what we do. And it's just, you know, people at times, you know, either God will look through them or other things, you know, when they're drinking or whatever, they might convict us or make us feel bad or something. But then it's ultimately Jesus knows, you know, what we should do or what we should not do. But, mm -hmm. you know, due to uh, all our imperfections, unfortunately, do live in a human world. So we do have to try to you know, have an appearance with godliness, but we always, always ultimately know for what Jesus is not. And that is true. Ultimately, we are sinful beings. We're going to sin. Mm -hmm. Being Christians, we should have a life that says I'm different. It's not that I'm going to try to earn heaven. It's not that I'm trying to earn God's praise. But he said that we're to be a light. If I say I'm a Christian, I'm out there and I'm the worst drinker and the worst drugger and the worst, worst thief in the world, then I'm no different from the world, and the world just looks at you and says, why should I be a Christian? Yeah. Uh, and does that mean I'm going to be perfect? No. But should I live a life that shows people there's a difference? Absolutely. And that's why we put on his righteousness, and then he starts working out of us, and he becomes that light. He draws people because he's lifting up himself. Uh, and I have less desire for whatever it is the sin, you know, each person has their own sin that they have a problem with, and there's less problems with those sins, and then God works out other sins, and people start looking at you and saying, oh, there is a difference between those people. And then they look at a Christian who's going through a hard time and say, wow, they're not crushed by it. You know, they seem to be handling it okay. If I was going through that, I would be, you know, totally devastated. And I've, I've shared with you so many times in you know, where people would ask me, why do you smile all the time? You know, and, and I don't, I'm not aware that I smile, but obviously I do because everybody always asks me and always has. But it's because of the peace of God. And they'd watch me in the middle of a, a rush where everybody's freaking out, you know, and I'm smiling and just cruising through the, through the time because God is in control. And it's critical. And we see this when a, when a Christian goes through a hard time, the you know, there's all the stories where somebody comes home and their house has been burnt down and, you know, they've come back from church and they go, well, praise God, nobody got hurt. You know, or the rest of them, you know, most people are like, well, I just lost everything I own. <laughs> and they're devastated because their hope is in what they own, not in, in the future. And that doesn't mean a non-Christian can't have a good attitude that nobody got hurt, but it's much easier for a Christian to, because we're not wrapped up in this world. We're wrapped up in the, in the, in the heavenly and if our focus is on the heavenly, then it really doesn't matter what happens down here because this is just temporary. And this is what I'm saying. When the Christian's perspective is, I've got, you know, what, 80, 90, 100 years to live, and then this is all gone. This is all gone, and then I live in eternity with God in heaven for eternity. Yeah, where stuff doesn't fade out or wear away. Nothing wears out, nothing, you know... Nobody's going to steal what we put up there. It's not going to. It's not going to go bad. It's not going to go out of style. Your body don't fall apart. Yeah, it's not going to fall apart because it's been around forever. 
know, but if your focus is only on this earth, you know, then you might as well be a be a Stoic and an Epicurean. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. You know, if you have no hope of a future, no hope of eternity, then you might as well get everything you can out of this world. If the Bible was not absolutely true, I would be one. Eat, drink, and be merry and, and live for today because there's nothing in the future. But I know that the Bible is true because of all the times I've searched it, found no contradictions, no, no problems with it. There are things I don't understand. Okay, when it comes to the teaching of the Trinity, I, under, I can give you all the verses on the Trinity. I can prove to you that the Trinity exists. Do I understand the Trinity? Absolutely not. It makes no sense in the world to try to figure that out. How can God say that he's planned everything out and yet I have a free will? I have no idea how that's true. It just proves that God is smarter than I am <laughs> and smarter than all the other theologians that have been trying to figure it out for 2,000 years. You know, well, yeah, because you still have a chance to reject them even with your free will. Mm -hmm. And yet God says that he knows what, what, what is going to be there. I don't know if it's the proper time to bring it up or not, but I heard from someone years ago that they started the Bible, I forget who it was, when it was like back in the time, like after like the no nobility of um, a family starts. And so they took Jesus off into a character of a family herring that was like things like that. And I wouldn't mm. know how to answer like that question. Well, I'm like, well, for one thing, all the New Testament books all go back to the first cent before the first century AD. Okay. They're translations. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, you go all the way back to Moses writing down the stories in, in Hebrew. And they may have existed even before that because they go all the way back to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, there was writing back in those days before the flood. So it's, um, there's all kinds of things you're gonna hear. You're gonna hear, you're gonna hear people say, well, we didn't have a full, a full Bible until you know, 500 AD when they finally put it all together. And when you look at all the different things that were out there and then they'll start throwing out all these books that were rejected. Well, there was about 28 questions they asked, and they had to meet all 28 answers to, the, to these questions to be included. And some of them just did not fit those questions. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people will say it's a man-made book. It was all put together by man because man compiled which books belong in it. I forget what religion they said made the Bible, but I think it was someone saying it was a Charles Witness that started the Bible, but I was like, no. Yeah. Like, there was a the Old Testament was compiled by the Jewish people through their prophets. And so the so the Old Testament was put together by the Jews and pretty much what the books of the Jews accepted as scripture, the Christians accepted as scripture. Then there then you have the writings of the writing of the New Testament. And a couple rules had to be in play. Number one, it had to have been quoted by the early church fathers. Mm -hmm. If you had a book that wasn't quoted by the early church fathers, it was automatically thrown out. Mm -hmm. And most of the books that were thrown out were written in 200, 300, 400 AD, long after any of the apostles were, even though they used the apostles' names and all of these things, yeah. they looked at them and said, no, these aren't, they've never been 
any of the early church fathers, so they threw them out. And then there were a number of other rules that had to, had to apply. So we are absolutely sure that this is God's word. Now, are, those, are some of the books that they cast out good books to read and stuff? Absolutely. It's like any other, you know, any other book out there. There are some good books out there. Uh, but they had certain rules they followed to say that it was scripture. I just learned Judas had his own book. It wasn't, it wasn't the same Judas. It was written in around 200 A.D. 200 AD. He was long dead. <laughs> okay, so, so it was Thomas. There's a book of Thomas out there. There's a, the Gospel according to Mary. All those books were written in 2, 3, 400 A.D. And when you read them, they are proponents of Gnostic Christianity, which is not Christianity. So then they were written long after long after the apostles died they just used their names to try to get others to read them because it had the famous name on it so this is why you got to be careful when you get into you've got to be careful when you get into it and people start talking about all these books they threw away well they threw them away because they didn't have anything to do with the time period that the, the new testament was written in called the canon or something. the canon the canon of scripture so, because it was important that it followed through time. Well, it was important, but it was important that they had the right books because people were getting these books that were written centuries afterwards and starting to say, "Well, it doesn't match up," and they were getting themselves confused. And it was teaching things that weren't in the scriptures, and but it had Thomas's name on it, it had Mary's name That's on it, asked, it, yeah. it it had James's name on it. You know, it had the name of the the apostle, so they figured, "Oh, it's got to be his writing," but it was written long after they were dead and they just threw their name on it oh. just as you would see done in today's world you know if you really want your book to be you know you're trying to deceive somebody you throw some famous author's name on it and yeah, put it out there and it's like oh well this guy's good author well wow i never i, I never knew he well he didn't he didn't <laughs> you know so this is what was happening with the scriptures back in the time when they put together the canon so they put together a whole bunch of rules that had to use, you know, had to be quoted and you know, I could name off a number of the, the, the great bishops, but none of you would know who they are anyway. So it's, but it had to be quoted by certain individuals in the first, first and second century AD where it was close enough that they knew the style and, 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 it, and then by, by saying it had to be quoted by them, then you were throwing out anything that was written after their death. Does that mean some good books might have been thrown out that they never quoted? Yes. You know, that were older books, yes. They just decided they weren't, if it wasn't important enough for the bishop of, of Ephesus to quote from, or, you know, or the bishop of, uh, you, know, you know, all these different places to quote from, then it probably wasn't that important a book. And so that's why they use the books they have. But even though these books, and this is the next thing, well, man picked the books, so that, you know, because we'll say there's no contradiction. Well, man picked the books, of course there's no contradiction. Well, I would challenge you to get any two scholars together on the same topic, have them write books, mm -hmm. and not have contradiction. I guarantee it won't happen. You could take the same person writing a book a year or two apart on the same topic, and they're going to contradict, with them, contradict themselves. I guarantee it. It happens. It happens in academic work all the time. Because people will come up, well, well, Mr. So-and-so, uh, two years ago you said this, and now you say this. Which one's right? Well, I've grown a little bit. The new one's right. That's not where the scriptures go. The scriptures stay consistent. Now, is there added things to the information? Yes. 
You know, the, the Old Testament didn't understand grace and mercy near as much as the New Testament does. Grace and mercy is in the Old Testament. There's nothing contradictory between the two. It just means when Jesus came, we understood more about grace, more about mercy than the Old Testament did. But we see Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham found grace every time he lied about Sarah and had Sarah taken into somebody's harem. You know, I mean, God protected them. That was a great grace. And we see grace all through the scriptures. David committing murder and adultery. The punishment was death. And God didn't give him death. He gave him grace. So, and mercy. So we want to be careful. I mean, yes, it, it adds. It makes a clearer picture. But it never contradicts. And when, when people say, well, I found an error. Well, you research out the errors. There's only about five or six that people really like to bring up, and all of them have easy answers. And you know, so there's no, there's no problem there. They'll, they'll point out to things like, like the Trinity, which we just cannot understand. Well, that, that, to me, is an, an even additional proof that God is the author of this book. If I could explain everything in this book and understand everything in the book, then I would be equal to God. Yeah, I'm glad there are things in here that we can't understand. I'm glad there's things in here that, that people have written for 2,000 years trying to explain, and they can't explain it. But I, I don't think you would. Well, even if you knew the book. Well, that's what I'm saying. But if I understood it all. Yeah, even if you understood just this book. Yeah. You know how much more you would need to know just before you can even. Yeah, but my point is, because there's things in this book that we can't even comprehend, there's a proof that there's a God, because why would man ever come up with the idea that there's a three-in-one, and they're, all, they're all, all totally different, and yet they're, they're the same? It makes no sense. It really makes no sense. Uh, the idea that God is totally sovereign, and yet we have free will is something we can't put together. I mean, I've struggled with that, and I've read all the different books, and and theologians on it, and it makes no sense because in our minuscule brain, it doesn't make sense. It just proves to us that there's somebody out there that's more, more intelligent than we are by far. And it's one of those things that I love. I love it about the Bible that it doesn't really contradict itself, but it's hard to understand. It's very hard to understand. We can't, we can't comprehend it, and yet we know that it's true. And so very important on this... Uh, We'll get back to where we're at, though. Verse 25. <laughs> Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Now, we know what propitiation is. That is the, the satisfaction of the payment that, that is due. So Jesus was the propitiation. He paid the price. But I love this. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. And all sins, as far as Jesus is concerned, are past. But it's very important for us to understand that when our sins are paid for, they're gone. God does not hold them against us. And this is where we talk to people so often. They've got to learn to be able to forgive themselves. And everybody goes, well, I can't forgive myself. Well, the idea on that is, do you believe the Word of God? If you believe the Word of God, live the Word of God. You know, and it's... The e you know, does it make it easy? No, but we've got to say, okay, God, you say they're gone. Start living that they're gone. If God says to forgive people, we're to forgive people. And, and Peter's fa fa you know, famous quote, you know, well, well, how often should I forgive them? Seven times? 
you know, and I know Peter was thinking he was being pretty generous. You know, forgive him, I'll forgive somebody seven times and then I don't have to forgive him anymore. Okay, and Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And he wasn't meaning 490 times. <laughs> he was just, keep going, keep going, keep forgiving them. Quit, quit, you know, you're not, you're, you know. You're not counting so that when you get to a 491, you say, okay, that's it. No more forgiveness. Yeah, there's not a gauge on it. Yeah, he was just saying as, a, as an idiom, just keep forgiving. And so we've got to get to the place in the scriptures where we say, okay, I'm going to learn to forgive. I'm going to learn to love. I'm going to learn to, to keep, keep things. And everybody's always looking for the loophole. What, what's the limit? Where, where do I stop? How close to the line can I get to sin before I cross the line? You know, and, and the idea isn't, isn't, shouldn't be how close can I get to the line, it's how far can I stay away from the sin altogether. I forgot to turn that down today. <laughs> uh, so, but Jesus paid for it. He declares us righteous for the remission of all sin. And our, our goal is to forget my own sin and quit wallowing in my own sin. And I've met many people who wallow in their sin. I... You know, I fell, I'm, and this is the 800th time I fell into this sin, I'm going to just stay down here. Isn't that the, pur the purpose of unconditional love is to forget all sin? It's part of it. Show love. Choose to love no matter what they've done, no matter what I've done. And most people have more problem forgiving themselves than they do others. Now, some people have it the exact opposite, but most people can forgive others easier the problem, part of the reason we have trouble forgiving ourselves is usually we know that we chose to do it on purpose sometimes. You know, you know, people will talk about falling into sin. And yes, that happens once in a while. But usually we have some consciousness of the fact that I chose to do that sin. I chose to, to do, and sometimes I really was doing it. I was being rebellious and I said, I'm going to do it no matter what. God, I know you said it's wrong. You know, told me not, but I'm going to do it anyway. And so those ones are the ones we really have trouble trying to forgive ourselves because we know our motive wasn't, it wasn't I just found myself in this sin, you know, I accidentally got there. And sometimes we know that we put ourselves in a position to, to accidentally get there. And, but God is saying, forgive it, forgive yourself, forgive others. And so many times people, you know, one of the things that I get is that people want to assign motive. They did this because. Well, how, number one, how do you know their reason? Now, we have enough trouble understanding our own reason for doing things a lot of times, much less, you know, somebody else. And I've heard it by, by lots of different people. Well, they said this, and this is what they meant. Well, how do you know what that's meant? They said that. that what they said was innocuous. How do you know that they meant something else? Well, I just know them. I'm sorry. I go, I don't think you know them that well. I don't know myself that well sometimes. Because I know sometimes I've said things that have hurt people, and I didn't mean to hurt them, and it was just... I was in a bad mood or something or where they caught me when I wasn't even thinking. I was distracted and, and I said something and it hurt them. You know, there was no intent, no purpose on it. Now, they may think there was intent. They may think there was on purpose, but there wasn't. And those ones where you still have to say you're sorry for and, and, and apologize and pray about. So to try to assign motive, the only person who can assign motive will be God because he knows our most inward thoughts. He's the one that knows whether I did something on purpose or not on purpose or, or you know, whatever it might be. He's the only one that can assign motive. 
And so we want to be careful about that. Because, and besides which, if you're assigning motive, then you're thinking they're doing bad, and it's even harder to forgive them. It's much easier to forgive somebody just because they hurt you and say, okay, I don't know if they did it on purpose, but I'm just going to forgive them. But if I'm absolutely sure they did it on purpose, that makes it harder to forgive. Because now I'm sure, you know, know what, but then if you go back to, how do I know? How do I know that they did it on purpose? Because number one, I'm mad at them when they, when they hurt me, so I'm going to, it's easy. It's easy to say they did it on purpose. They did it to try to hurt me. And as soon as you go there, you're making it very hard to forgive. And so we want to be careful with that. I'm trying to put words and things like that bother me until it gets to the point where it gets physical or something and that's it. Yeah. And even with the physical, you want to be careful with, you know, because sometimes people just work out of the frustration of their anger and they don't know how to do anything but be physical. And that doesn't mean we allow ourselves to be beat up or anything, but it just, it is what it is. I mean, they may not, even then they may not be trying to do something. You know, some people are raised up that the only way you can solve something is by being physical because words didn't do anything in their houses. So their first response is to be physical. And so, again, it's one of those things where we need to just show love and show kindness and do it. He works it out for all of us. Yeah. Will I let somebody beat on me? Probably not. I know enough to defend myself and keep myself from being beat on without having to hurt them in the process. Uh, but to try to hurt them back is not what I want to do. Uh, but I'm also not going to sit there and be a punching bag for somebody. <laughs> and I'm not going to advise anybody to be a punching bag for somebody. You know, if, if there's physical abuse at a, at a home, I'm going to tell the person that's being abused, get away from the situation. Get away from it. Don't sit there and, and be abused uh, because that's not what God wants. So... Jesus is our propitiation so that our sins are forgiven completely. And it says here in verse 26, To declare, I say, that at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believes in, in Jesus. And justifier, that's a, that's a legal term we've talked about. It means to declare, declare perfect or declare right. Or, you know. And so this is all, and then all of this. So where's the boasting? <laughs> If I'm justified in Christ and I'm letting him live through me, what do I have to boast in? I have nothing to boast in. Because ultimately, it is not me that does anything that's worth anything. If it's going to be eternally worth anything, it's Jesus that's doing it through me. And there is no boasting. I can't go say, look at me, look how good I am, because the moment I do that, I'm going to fall. You know, God said in, in, in the Psalms, the pride, uh, in Proverbs, the pride goes before the fall. And anybody who, and this is what I say, if, if you may not have a temptation in an area, you know, for me, drinking is not an area that I'm going to be tempted. Will I say I will never have a problem with that? There is no way I would ever say that because there's so much alcoholism in my family that I would always have in the back of my mind the possibility that I could end up getting drunk. I can't, I can't fathom how it could happen, but the minute I rule it out, there could be circumstances that put it, you know, that, that fell just perfectly for it to happen. And we, you, we've got to be careful because anybody who thinks that they cannot fall in an area is going to be setting, them up for, setting themselves up for failure. Because anything I think I can do something in my strength, I'm going to lose. 
I'm going to lose if I think I can do it at my strength. I don't do it in my own. I found it gives me the strength to That's do exact. whatever I need to do. That's exactly it. No matter what it is or how big it is or even how small it is. There are certain areas in my life that I say it's very unlikely that I'm going to fall. And then there's lots of areas in my life that it's very likely I'm going to fall and, and fall hard. But even those areas where I don't think I'm going to fall, it is all because of Jesus. It's not because of me. And the minute I think it's me, God will make sure that I know that in my own strength I can't stand. And he'll, because he can set up the circumstances. He can, you know, uh, a lot of leaders can set up circumstances to, to draw people in the path and they end up thinking it's their way of, that it was their decision to do it. They just kind of were led down a path and, and all of a sudden they're doing what the manager wanted to do and they think it was their decision. Because you, know, you just kind of, you make an assignment that takes them down the right paths and everything. Can you fail at that type of decision? Yes, but, but I've done it many times where I've led people down a, down a path and, and all of a sudden they're thinking it's their decision and it's a better, in many ways it's a good way because they're invested in it, it's their decision. God can do the same thing to us, and he's perfect at it. If he wants to show us that we're weak in some area, and because we think we're strong and we're being prideful in it, I can guarantee David never thought that he was going to commit adultery. I'm sure he probably didn't think that. I'm pretty sure he probably never expected to commit murder. And yet, he found himself as a murderer and an adulterer. So, we want to be careful because we, God's going to say... We want to be careful about that because he's not going to let us stand in our own strength. We can't stand in our own strength before God. And, and as it always has to be by his strength I can do anything. And that's what the scriptures tell us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do nothing if it's in my own power. Nothing internal. Because it will always fail. So there's no boasting, no, no nothing in there. And then in verse 30, seeing that it is one God shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. God is the one that does the justifying. Doesn't matter, and this, is, this point is kind of lost on us, but basically it says just because you're a Jew, you're not going to get better off than those who aren't Jews. That's what circumcision and uncircumcision is referring to. And it says that God is not respecting, he's not saying the Jews are better than anybody else who, became, who becomes a Christian. Uh, and in the early church, that was a problem. The Jews considered themselves better because they've been following God longer and they knew his laws and his rules. And, the, and these poor uncircumcised Christians, they didn't know anything. They were learning. And Paul was saying, doesn't matter. Circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't matter because God is the one that justifies. God is the one where the victory is. Okay, Romans 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounds, grace did much more abound, that as sin has reigned unto death, so even so might grace reign through the righteousness, through righteousness unto eternal life by Christ Jesus our Lord. And it says, because we are getting the law, we're going to see that we're sin, and where where we see our sin, grace abounds, and in it doesn't. In uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any, any longer therein? And so Paul is saying, you know, when we sin, God gives us more grace. But we're not to go out and sin just so that grace can, you know, that we get lots of grace. We're going to get more grace than we 
than we ever thought we need just because God is gracious. We don't have to go out there and try to get him to give us more grace. I've got to go out and be really bad so I can have a whole lot of grace. No, God is saying, I want to give you grace. Just let him live through, live through us because sin reigns unto death. There is a consequence. When we sin, we may not be in a place where God is saying, I'm punishing you because of the sin, but sin, when it's planted, produces fruit. And there's a, there's a consequence. When we sin, there's consequence. When we do good, there's consequence. And so we don't want to do a lot of sin just so grace can abound because that also means there's going to be a lot of consequence. Uh, if somebody goes out and they go out drinking for a night, uh, the very least consequence they have is they'll spend a lot of money. Okay? That would be the least consequence they're going to have out of that, that night's drinking. And we all know all the other consequences that could happen. Car accident, hurting somebody, getting into a fight, going home with somebody that's not your, not your, this hangover the next day. There's all kinds of other possible consequences. Jail. The jail of you. <laughs> so, but you know, so you've got all these things that could happen, and but even the least consequence in that situation is terrible. I mean, you know, you go out and you've spent, you know, got it, however much it takes to get drunk for the individual. You know, you spend. Ten to a hundred dollars on the alcohol at the bar, and you know, it's, you know, spend money you usually don't have to forget something that it doesn't that you don't forget uh, for longer than a, for for a night. Uh, you know, and that's just one of the many sins out there. And all sin has consequences. You know, all sin has consequences, and we want to stay away from the consequences. And so we don't want to sin. We want to live under God's grace. We want to live under His righteousness, and His grace will be perfect. The grace, God gives us everything that he, all of his riches. You know, if you think about that, we are his children. We're going to be talking about that later on, but we are his children. We have the riches of God at our, at our disposal if we would just totally believe it and, and live a life that says, I'm going to live for God's riches. Now, the riches we're looking for eventually are eternal. And the problem most people have is they want the riches now. <laughs> You know, Lord, give me, give me the big house. Give me the, give me the good cars. Give me, give me the no problems on this world. And God said, no, that's not what this world's about. That's not what this world's about. This world is the training ground for us to, put, to build our, put our treasures in heaven. And that means sometimes doing without, sometimes being, if we are blessed with the riches of God, then we are to turn around and use them to build his kingdom and invest them into our mansion in heaven. Doesn't mean that we can't spend anything on ourselves, but you know, most Christians will never be wealthy because they could not be trusted to not spend it all upon themselves and, and keep you know keep building God's kingdom with it. There have been some very great Christians who have been very wealthy because they turned around and put lots of money back into God's kingdom, and they had a lot of this world's wealth as well, and had nice homes and everything, but they also gave to God, and God is saying, His grace, His grace will reign. You know, if we fully understood his grace, you know, that he has given us everything. How often do we think about everything I have is because God has blessed me? Whether it's a little or a lot, it's what he has given me. And that's very important for us to understand. A lot of people, when they don't have a lot, start complaining, well, God, you're not giving me enough. And they're showing that they have a covetous attitude. I want more, God. I want more because you're just not giving me enough. And you'll never see if that's your case because God's saying you're not happy. 
Paul said he had learned to be content in much and in little. And we don't know what much meant to him, but he did at times work and have, you know, things. But we also know what, for Paul, sometimes little was being shipwrecked and living on an island with nothing. Okay? Uh, being beat. You know, and so he said, I've learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. The first step to getting any kind of blessing from God is to learn to be content with what I have. Some of the most covetous and, and, and people are those who have little because they want everything other people have. You know, because they're going, well, I don't have this. I don't have the nice car. I don't have the... the 62-inch screen uh, TV. I don't have the top-of-the-line stereo. I, I got this old beater of a car. I don't have a good car. Ferrari. <laughs> I don't have the Ferrari or the or the Lamborghini or the Viper or whatever your, whatever car you think is the, the 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 car you know the car to have. Uh, I don't have the 80 room 80 room mansion that I don't need because I don't have enough people to put up with you know. Uh, but do you understand what I'm saying? You know, some of the poorest people are the most covetous and desiring to have everything else. They're not happy with what God has given them. Mm -hmm. A lot of times the wealthy don't care because they don't care. They, they can buy, buy whatever they want and they don't care anymore what other people have. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, to drop $1,000 to them is nothing, you know. And, uh, but it is important for us to be content. Be content so Christ's is sufficient for us and not be worried about what I have or don't have mm -hmm. and then sometimes we'll watch God give us great blessings because we've been content the key is as we get blessed is to stay content <laughs> because sometimes the more you get the more you want because all of a sudden you start realizing what you don't have and it's still you need to stay content the whole idea of keeping up with the Joneses I bought this they bought that oh they got a nicer play thing than I have I've got a, a you know that's not being content. Sometimes you just say, well, I'm just happy with what I've got and stop. Doesn't, and then God will bless. God will honor. All right, let's close in prayer. And Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we ask that you help us always to see that we are clothed in your righteousness. We have you in, in us. We ask that you go forward with us today and, and give us whatever you'd have us to do. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.